I received a set list, um, just like anyone else that receives one every week. I looked through the songs, and I didn't really think through the lyrics. Well, this morning in the intercessory prayer, the Lord had me open up with Psalm 30. And Psalm 30 closed out our earlier portion of worship. But joy does come in the morning. You know, there's a lot of things that happen in our day, in our week, that can be downers. There's a lot of things that cause us to mourn. We have the hope of a joyful day as we awake. You know, today we are, or this week we have a double portion. It actually includes the final reading in the book of Numbers. And uh, that's why we closed with the Kazakh today. But I'm not going to talk about the part that Mike read, which would be Matot. I'm going to go to the second half, which is Masay, which begins in Numbers 33. And it starts with these words, Ele Masay, which loosely translated means, these are the journeys. So the, this message is appropriate title. It's your journey with a subtitle. How are you doing? Masay begins with listing all the locations where the Israelites encamped during their 40-year journey in the desert. Now, if you think about it, all the way up to this point, we've heard about each encampment. So the listing of the encampments here in Masay has caused some commentators to question, why? Why are we recounting all these locations? since we've already been mentioned as we've gone along. Rabbi Isaac ben Judah Abarbanel, he was a a 15th century Bible commentator, and he was one of those that questioned that. He said, why is it necessary to repeat all these encampments here in Marseille? Well, he gives a number of possible reasons that God had Moses do this. First one he says is the list shows God's kindness to the Israelites. Because during the 40 years, there were 42 different places where they stayed. The purpose being that they were not constantly on the move. They were given opportunities to enjoy some rest along the way. Not only the fact that God was waiting for that generation to uh, die out because of what he declared, but they couldn't just keep moving for 40 years without resting. The second reason he gives is that God wanted them to recognize that while they were in the desert, they faced an environment that was nothing like any other that they've ever faced. These were environments that were something that could not actually support human habitation. And because of the reason why, they were not near places of water. And we need water as human beings to live. Not only that, 
They need water to support their agriculture and their animals, so therefore, without water, they can't live very long. As a matter of fact, Moses emphasizes that in Deuteronomy chapter 8, which we're not there yet, but I'm going to quote verses 15 through 16, because he said, He led you through the great and terrible wilderness, fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought forth water for you from the flinty rock. He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know in order to afflict you and test you to do you good in the end. Wow, that doesn't sound like it's doing me any good, all of these things. But it says it will do you good in the end. So because these places were all barren and otherwise uninhabitable, it was only by the grace of God and His divine intervention that such a huge nation of men, women, and children were provided for for such a length, extended length of time in a land that would no, otherwise not be able to be inhabited by anybody. They had to rely on God. I mean, side note, my question is, what happened? He was the one you were depending on the whole time. Where'd you lose your focus? Okay, but that's neither here nor there at this point. In the Haftarah portion, Jeremiah makes reference to these barren places. In chapter 2, verse 6, he said, They did not ask, Where is Adonai who brought us up from the land of Egypt and led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, through a land of drought and distress, through a land where no one travels, where no one lives? So except for God Himself providing for their every need, which means water, which means food, that they can't grow without the water. Except for this, the Israelites could not have survived in all of that emptiness. These were places in, that we just read where Jeremiah calls a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and distress, a land where no one travels, where no one lives. So it wasn't just that people didn't live there. People didn't even go there. They didn't travel through those lands until God had Moses lead them through there. And the last thing he says is that by recounting all these encampments, the Torah is telling us that God's presence was not only with the Israelites in the wilderness, but it shows that He would always be with them in the future. The prophet Micah says in uh, chapter 7, beginning of verse 15, as in the days of your coming out of the land of Egypt, I will show him wonders. Nations will see and be put to shame despite all their might. They will put a hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick dust like a snake. Like crawling things of the land, they will come trembling out of their hiding places. To Adonai Eloheinu, they will submit in awe, in awe of you. So just like he led them out of the, out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of Pharaoh's control, and brought them into the wilderness, Ezekiel further prophesies that there's going to be a final redemption from the exile when God says in Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning of verse 33, As I live, it is a declaration of Adonai, 
Surely, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with fury poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered. With a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with fury poured out, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. I will judge you there face to face, just as I judged your fathers in the wilderness of the, in the land of Egypt, so I will judge you. It is a declaration of Adonai. So the prophecy is that in this future, not only is God going to be there, but He's going to be the king. He's going to rule over them. Because if you will recall, the people wanted a king over them. Well, God said He was going to be a king. He stated that very clearly. He's going to be the king over them. But they wanted to see something physical. They wanted someone there standing in front of them. And what did that get them? Chapter 33 is written specifically to the second generation. Because we know that first generation is not going in. It was the generation that was going to enter, conquer, and ultimately inherit the promised land. It serves as a summary of the Masay, the journeys of the Israelites. And the list of encampments also serves as a reminder for future generations. Near the end of chapter 33, God issued a command to this second generation, which was to completely destroy the Canaanites. But not just their people, as we read in Numbers 33, beginning of verse 50, Adonai spoke to Moses along the Jordan in the plains of Moab, across from Jericho, saying, Speak to B'nai Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you must drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. You must destroy all their idols and cast images and demolish their high places. You will take possession of the land, so you will settle in it, because I have given it to you to possess. Verse 54, Israel was told to divide the land, and divide it evenly by tribe and also by family. But just like every other command, God issues a warning of disobedience. In verses 55 and 56, he says, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, whoever you allow to remain will become to you barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land in which you will be living. Then what I intended to do to them, I will do to you. Isn't it interesting that we we read more than once that the Israelites are told to completely destroy a people group, including kings, including livestock, including their idols, including all their standing stones, their Asherah poles, etc. But time and time again, someone decides, oh, we'll, we'll just keep this. You know, it's not hurting anyone. We'll keep these cows because they're really good. Oh, but the king, you know, we... We can get, we can gain power by having the king in our possession. How many times has that worked? God said, what I was going to do to them, I will do to you. Then we move on to chapter 34, 
And that, it's long and drawn out, but it specifies the boundaries for the land of Israel. And it also names the tribal leaders for each tribe. Chapter 35. It's interesting. Charlene had a map this morning. She was showing me and showing me where these six cities were. But we talk, it talks about establishing the six cities of refuge. And it was set aside for anybody that unintentionally killed another person. Not for a murderer. Murderers would be put to death. And those cities would become a safe place for the unintentional killer, for lack of a better term, to stay and avoid being sought out by the avenger, the kinsman avenger, until the death of the priest that was in office at that time. Now you gotta imagine if a priest just came into office, that guy's gonna spend a lot of time in that city of refuge. But that's okay. Because he would be safe. Revenge was not gonna be visited upon him. Or her. It was, it made a safe place. It's interesting to note that in verse 33 of that chapter, it says, you are not to pollute the land in which you are. Blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for land polluted by bloodshed except for the blood of the one who sheds it. So the blood of a murderer defiles the land. It's polluted because of that blood. But the atoning blood of the murderer atones for the land as well. It's still spilling blood. But it's an atoning blood. What do you think of when you think of atoning blood? Yeshua, our Messiah, who shed His blood for all mankind. In verse 34 it says, You are not to defile the land where you live, where I live, for I dwell among B'nai Israel. So God says don't defile the land that He's given Him. He gave it to Israel. He gave it to them as their possession. But you don't defile it because he chose to dwell there in their midst. So what makes the land of Israel holy is based on the fact that God himself chose to dwell there. The people did not make the land holy. God's presence made the land holy. You may recall last week, in Pinchas, specifically in chapter 27 of Numbers, Malah, Noah, Oglah, Milcah, and Tirzah, who were the daughters of Zelophehad, came to Moses, Eliezer, and all the tribal leaders and said in verse 3, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not one of the followers banding together against Adonai with Korach, Though he died for his own sin, yet he had no sons. Why should our father's name diminish from his family just because he had no son? Give us property among our father's brothers. So, sounds legitimate to me. So what's Moses say? That's too bad, so sad. No, 
He took their issue to God. And God established a provision to keep the inheritance intact within their tribal families. And in verse 11 we read, this is to be a legal statute for B'nai Israel, just as Adonai commanded to Moses. Now, here at the conclusion of Massey, in chapter 36, we see that this issue is visited again. But this time it's for further clarification on the rules and regulations here. And the clarification had to be done, otherwise, think about it, what did they have to do? The daughters had to not marry outside of the tribe of their father. Because what happens? You go and marry outside your father's tribe. The inheritance goes to that man that you married. It lo- it, your tribe loses. So it had to be a marriage within the tribe to keep the tribal inheritance alive. And that's what the further ruling was. Because otherwise it would fall on the husband's tribe if he is in another tribe. Then, too bad, so sad. Journeys, must say, journeys. Seems like an appropriate name for this parashah. And in, one, in that one word, it actually seems to summarize the book of Bamidbar, meaning in the desert. Remember back the first parsha of Bamidbar? The people started out on a positive note. They were following the commands of the Lord, but it didn't take long before they took a negative turn. They started going against His commands. There were many episodes of sinful behavior that we can read about all the way through the book of Numbers. The greatest was the sin of unbelief. That's why that generation was not going to enter the promised land. Because they did not believe God. Even Moses and Aaron were not going in. Because of one moment of unbelief. So they were sentenced to die in the wilderness. In chapter 33, Moses leaves out all the sinful events. Okay, he recounted all these encampments, but he doesn't talk about the sins that occurred as they're coming up to the border. So that if you only read Massey as a summary, it could look like the journey from Egypt was uneventful and actually went quite well. Everything was easy peasy hunky dory. So you do have to read the whole book. Many commentators have pointed out that they think that this was intentional by Moses, not recounting all the sins. Think about it. That makes sense to me because the sins were committed by that first generation. They're not going in anyway. Who are they repeating it to? The second generation. They saw that nonsense. They heard about that already. It's really not necessary to bring in the negative at this point. So those sins were not going to be held against this 
generation. So there wasn't no there was no need, according to some commentators, to repeat them. Because all I have to do is go back and read the rest of what Moses had to say, and they would have seen exactly what happened and why the previous generation was not entering. But the second generation now has the opportunity and the ability to be successful where their fathers fell short. Moses is reminding them to not repeat those same mistakes themselves. My question is, did they achieve this goal? Well, the ending of the book of Numbers, some have called a cliffhanger. Because it doesn't really say what happened next. But if we look back at our Haftarah portion again, in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, God Himself brought a charge against that generation that's now living in the land. He cites the terrible and various sins that the people have committed. Wait a minute. Again, they didn't learn from their father's mistakes. Now they're in the land and they didn't do what God said? Vicious cycle. It repeats itself. Several generations removed from Moses at this point when Jeremiah is prophesying. The Israelite people still haven't removed the Canaanites and the other peoples in the land. What happened? That was the first order of business. When you go into the land, get rid of them. But they hadn't done it generations later. In addition to that, it's probably the worst part, they began to adopt the practices of those people. They started worshiping idols. Or as I like to refer to them, as non-gods. In these verses in Jeremiah, the Lord details the spiritual corruption of the people. He even makes a comparison of them to prostitutes. That's how horrible it was in God's eye at that time. So, to answer my question, no. They did not achieve the goal. It's still amazing to me, whenever I read these passages and others just like them, how stubborn and how sinful mankind is. Even when the warnings are clear, they seem to always drift to the wrong side. Not to mention the whole memory of those previous generations and how they were punished for the very same actions. It's clear. God said you should do it. If God said you should do it. Even armed with the knowledge of the consequences for disobedience and with a detailed historical record of the consequences of not following God's command, the people continued this cycle of sin. It was a continuation of a journey that extended from one generation to the next. The sins that caused one generation not to enter the promised land became the same sins that we read about in Jeremiah. 
and of the same sins of today. Which is turning away from God and turning to non-gods, false gods, idols. No matter what the false god, whatever it is, it could be a thing, it could be a person, it could be a place. It's still not God. But by the grace of God, we've been provided with a way to stay on the right path. To go forward on our journey. It's a journey that is ultimate, the ultimate generate destination is the land where the Lord Himself has chosen to dwell. The New Jerusalem. God Himself in the person of Yeshua, broke that cycle of sin. It was through His death, burial, and resurrection. So why is it, in this day and age, we still have those that still want to cross back over into that territory? Back into disobedience. Back into worshiping false gods. Turning away from God. Worshiping things. Instead of God. In the same way that He saved His people, Israel, from a physical slavery in Egypt, through His blood, He's delivered us from our spiritual slavery. Delivered us from that cycle of sin that's been passed down from generation to generation. Many of you have heard the, the term Generational curses. Well, they do exist. They need to be broken. They need to be cast into the lake of fire. Come into newness of life through the shed blood of Yeshua. So as we consider the Torah and Haftarah portions, I have three questions. There's a few more I could throw in, but just these three. Number one, what is the journey that you are on today and whose way are you following after? Number two, on your journey, have you turned away from following the Lord? And third, do you find yourself worshiping non-gods like things, possessions, people? That can be easy to do. How many can't put away their electronics to take time to pray. Turn off the TV. Shut off the computer. The telephone. I've heard many people, and I'm one, that periodically do a technology fast. It all gets shut off. I don't watch TV. I don't listen to the radio. I don't go online. And I don't have the phone turned on. If you ever call me and go straight to the voicemail and it's during the day, I'm probably on an electronic fast. Because during the day, normally my phone will be on and you can reach me. But we need to do that sometimes. We all need to shut down. And we need to focus on Him. There's times we need to refresh. We need to come back to Him. But these three and... There are others you can probably come up with on your own. That's just a few of the questions we should ask ourselves from time to time to make sure that we are staying on the right track. 
if and when we do find ourselves on, not on the right track, if our journey has taken us somewhere else that we're not supposed to be, we need to make a decision right then and there to listen to God's warnings and take them to heart. This week's Haftarah portion fortunately leaves us on a positive note. It's filled with hope. Jeremiah chapter 4, it says, If you will return, O Israel, return to me, declares Adonai. If you will put your detestable things out of my sight, then you will not waver. You will swear as Adonai lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. The nations will bless themselves in him and in him they will glory. That's an invitation not just to Israel, but to all of us who are supposed to be calling ourselves walking in the words of God, following the commands of God, doing what He wants done, how He wants it done, that's an invitation to return to Him. Setting aside our idols, our non-gods, our distractions, if you will, and dedicating ourselves again to Him as humble servants. See, God wants us to all be in a right relationship with Him. We can only be in that right relationship through His Son, Messiah Yeshua. Accepting His shed blood as a covering for our sin. Accepting His sacrificial death on that execution stake as a breaking of that cycle of wrongdoing that many get caught up in. Trust me, if you haven't been there, Many believers find themselves caught up in that cycle. Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And those who enter through it are many. How narrow is the gate and difficult the way that leads to life. And those who find it are few. My prayer for each and every one of us is that we choose to walk down that narrow path. And if we strayed along the way, if we find ourselves on that broad path, things are seeming to be so easy because we're not doing the right thing. Because if you ever notice... When you're not doing the right thing, things seem easy and carefree. Because we're not walking in His purpose. But if we find ourselves there, I pray that we would all return to that narrow path. See, our journey has a promise of a destination. A destination of a peace and a joy that is beyond all our understanding. If he, if we follow him, then we can say, my journey, I'm doing fine by the grace of God. As we were worshiping in song today, not only was I amazed how God 
hold together Psalm 30 in intercessory prayer and then in the song service. But I asked the worship team to come back and once again lead us in fall on me. I want you to really pay attention to the words as we're singing because that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Spirit of God falling on us and keeping us on that narrow path. So Abba Father, as the worship team is coming, I pray that You would speak to us through the words that were spoken today and through the words of this song. And that we would remember to rely on You to lead us and guide us into all truth. Lead us and guide us on that right path. And give us the understanding that when we're on that wrong path, we can come back to You. Fall on us through Your Ruach HaKodesh, Your Holy Spirit, and lead us and guide us into Your truth. And give us the continued grace and love that You brought upon us in the beginning. In Yeshua's name. Thank you.